Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, everybody. Thank you for being here with us. This is really unique for me. Uh, we are actually recording this live. So if you're listening to the podcast, I am sitting at a virtual conference with live people on the other end listening to us put this together, which is a fantastic experience. And I really want to thank hashtag NatSecGirlSquad for letting Tech Man be a part of their conference. And honestly, when they reached out to me and asked if I wanted to do this, I had the perfect topic. Like I just, I knew exactly what we should talk about, mostly because I felt like it was missing from the first autonomous episode. So we are talking about undersea and surface autonomy today. And after that first autonomous episode where we mostly just talked about air systems, I knew there was just so much more on this subject that we needed to get into. And so thank you, Natsec Girl Squad, for giving us an outlet to explore even more in autonomy. Hey guys, here with your usual acronym caveat, especially because this week they are a little confusing and I have stumbled over them because they all sound very similar. So the first is USV, Unmanned Surface Vehicle, or ASV, Autonomous Surface Vehicle. And our expert, Regan, goes into her distinction between unmanned and autonomous in the beginning. So pay attention to that. We also have UUV, Unmanned Undersea Vehicle, and AUV, Autonomous Undersea Vehicle. And then lastly, I think I threw in one, so I'm very sorry about that. I think I said CONOPS, which of course is a DOD term that stands for concept of operations and is just basically a statement or graphic of a commander's, you know, series of operations or, or intent to operate in the field. Hope you guys enjoy. There is no one better to do this with than our guest expert today, Dr. Regan Campbell. She is the general manager of autonomous and advanced naval platforms at L3 Harris. She has had a long career as a civilian in the Navy and is going to dive deep with us and tell us all of the opportunities and challenges that exist with this technology. So Dr. Campbell, maybe you can kick us off by just telling us a bit about yourself and your story. Yeah, thanks, Caitlin. This is a this is really exciting for me as well. So uh, currently, as you said, I'm the general manager for autonomous and advanced naval platforms at L3 Harris Technology. So in this role, I'm accountable for delivering on and growing the unmanned portfolio through a focus on execution and developing cross-functional teams to meet things like cost schedule, technical performance, and delivery commitments. 
I also drive the unmanned strategy partnerships with different companies or industry writ large or government, et cetera, congressional engagement and IRAD prioritization to demonstrate to both the military and commercial customers that unmanned is really a trusted partner to achieve their mission goals. As you noted, prior to L3 Harris, I was a Navy civilian. So my last assignment was as the major program manager for the guided missile frigate program office. So I had the programmatic technical and fiscal responsibility for that $19 billion program, which represents the future of small surface combatants. So pretty exciting program. And really, I'm extremely proud to say that while I was there, my team one, both the DOD's David Packard Excellence in Acquisition and the Department of Navy's Dr. Al Summeroff Acquisition Award. So it really, truly was a team effort, and they are just fantastic and, and really great to have worked with. Also with the Navy, I worked as a director for Undersea Technology, a deputy Undersea Chief Technology Officer. I worked as a program manager for Advanced Submarine Systems Development, which looked at risk reduction and technology maturation for hull mechanical and electrical systems on submarines. I also had some assignments, for instance, the Science Advisor to Third Fleet, Human Systems Integration Technical Director. I was an action officer at the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Dazen Ships. And I worked as an engineer for the aircraft carrier program for the LPD-17, which is the amphibious ship. I worked at Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard doing a submarine uh, maintenance evolution. And then uh, kind of a lot of hands-on work early in my career at the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Panama City and at the Naval Air Warfare Center in Pax River. Outside of work, I'm a bit of an engineering education nerd, if you will. Um, I have a Bachelor of Science from Embry-Riddle. I have a Master's and a PhD from Georgia Tech, go Jackie, as a human factors engineer. I have an MBA from Arizona State and a Master's of Science in Ocean Engineering from Virginia Tech. And on a personal note, I'm married. I have two kids, a girl and a boy. Um, and three step kids. So full and exciting life. Full house. Yeah. Well, as some of you know, who have listened to the podcast before, I'm also a Georgia Tech grad. So I am just so excited to have a fellow jacket on with me today. And especially one that is probably way overqualified to be teaching me about undersea and service autonomous systems. <laughs> but Regan, maybe you can uh, start us off. I know these systems are part of the Navy strategy to diversify its ships and its portfolio. But can you just give us like a 101 on what are surface or undersea autonomous systems? What are they capable of? How are they currently supporting the Navy or the rest of the military? What are they going to do? Sure. Yeah. So L3 Harris is a world leader on unmanned or autonomous surface vehicles. They call them USBs or ASBs. We do like to make the distinction of autonomous surface vehicles only because you know, there are a lot of folks that think of, you know, USBs that you're controlling with a little joystick as being state-of-the-art, but really have and are headed towards fully autonomous systems. So we've 
performed over 2,100 hours at sea without human intervention. And we have over 125 unmanned surface vehicles operating on, around the world in both commercial and defense missions. So fundamentally, USBs or ASBs, your choice, need to understand the environment around them and be able to function effectively and predictably within that environment. So for us, foundational to that is our ASU autonomy, which is an open architecture software that has artificial intelligence and machine learning embedded to support situation awareness and Colreg compliant navigation. So if you're not familiar with Colreg, it's the International Regulation for Preventing Collisions at Sea. So it's the rules of the road for navigating at sea. So in the case of our ASVs, we see the early adoption in the areas of things like environmental surveys, mine hunting, monotonous transit, or close-in surveillance and reconnaissance missions. Unmanned systems in general have been shown to reduce the cost, reduce risk to human life, improve operational flexibility, increase capacity and really improve the data in terms of the timeliness or the quality that you can get in, in a range of applications. So in addition to our USB excellence, L3 Keras also happens to have a premier small to medium sized AUV or autonomous undersea vehicle, or you could call it UUV again, from your preference. That is our IVER family of systems with over 300 delivered around the world. So IVER also has commercial foundations, very similar to our USB, but really they've been recently expanding the influence in environmental surveys, mine hunting, and contested environment surveillance and reconnaissance. The IVER has some really amazing features, including, for instance, the ability to integrate a variety of sensor packages, depending on the mission and to switch between energy chemistry. So for instance, the operator can dial up or dial down the endurance of the vehicle. So IVER, similar to the USBs, demonstrate many of the same benefits, really taking the human out of the battlefield or providing additional safe standoff for our manned platform. So a little bit of everything is what I hear. We always get into the autonomous versus unmanned or uncrewed as well. Obviously, we were trying to be very funny with the name of our podcast, Tech Unmanned, play on unmanned systems, but also that the hosts are women and most of the guests are as well. So I love that this this little take on, on unmanned or autonomous systems and that they're not necessarily fully uncrewed or autonomous. There's, there is a human in the loop somewhere, very similar to, to air systems and air platforms as well. And you just hit on a couple things that I think we have heard throughout the podcast, like the open architecture software, the places that uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning can support these bigger systems and platforms. Regan, maybe you know, in your role now, but also in your previous life in the department, you know, what are some of the challenges that DOD and or industry faces in developing these systems, testing these systems and deploying these systems? Yeah, so in my opinion, I would say the biggest challenge is really a cultural one for DOD and industry. So kind of two pieces to that. One, can we trust the autonomy? And secondly, can we really change our view of what a platform needs to be? So on the trust question, 
So we've been working really hard to expose various audiences to the current and future capability of these systems so they understand really how far industry has progressed in autonomy. I find within the Department of Defense, they're a little outdated or kind of stepping back to the origins of autonomy as opposed to recognizing that there's been a lot of industry investment over the years in autonomy. You know, just within L3 Harris, we have, you know, over a decade of experience, other companies very similar. We really feel like demonstrating our capabilities in real world missions and exercises is hugely important because we believe the broader maritime audience is really unaware of the maturity and diversity of these platforms. As I mentioned earlier, many still believe that you have to control it with a joystick, which really couldn't be further from the truth. These vehicles can and do operate autonomously, replanning based on surrounding traffic, and they operate quite safely and predictably in very complex maritime environments. So through at-sea demonstrations, we really aim to expand the art of the possible so people can start to understand just how mature and capable these systems are today. So when you see the vehicles in action, you really start to understand uh, the capabilities, and that helps you grow your trust and faith in them and really start to expand your thinking about what missions they're capable and really would excel at doing today. A little bit more on what our autonomy is, because I think it's useful for people to sort of understand. So ASU software is really at the core of both our USBs as well as any man to unmanned conversion. So for instance, if we take a manned platform and put autonomy on it to make it unmanned. So our software utilizes something called deliberative autonomy for its route and maneuver planning. So deliberative planning is different from purely reactional autonomy, which is more commonly found because reactive autonomy is unable to plan in the future and react to systems without warning. So for instance, it doesn't do a look ahead look. So you might get a very choppy path if it, it goes back and forth between multiple contexts. It sees someone, it turns, it turns right into conflict with someone else, so it has to turn again. So it can be very choppy and it only reacts to immediate events. So even when it comes to a correct solution, it can be very unnerving for an operator or an observer, making it difficult to trust that autonomy. ASVIEW, on the other hand, operates, as I said, utilizing deliberative autonomy, which considers multiple contacts, multiple behaviors simultaneously, and is really looking out into the future. As a result, it behaves a lot more predictably to the human as well as to the other maritime traffic that's out there. So we feel like that really supports the building of that trust and quicker adoption of the technology. In terms of the changing of the view of a platform, so really how does the Navy, how does you know, Coast Guard industry, commercial applications view a platform? We've started to see more willingness by our customers to start thinking of completely unmanned or optionally manned mindsets rather than I'm going to take a manned platform and adapt it. So one of the most common requests that we used to see was for a bridge. Like I, I need a bridge on my ship. 
naturally a bridge doesn't really make sense when you're talking about a strictly unmanned boat, but there seems to be an expectation that one's necessary because that's what boats have. So more recently, groups like DARPA are starting to ask specifically to take the human completely off the boat. So it's a really interesting concept to design a ship or a platform specifically without the need for humans. So it eliminates things like galleys, beds and heads, as we say, or, or bathrooms off the platforms to really free up a tremendous amount of space and reduce the size of services, such as like the amount of water you need available or, you know, on a man platform for someone to drink and take a shower and, you know, all of those things. You don't need that on the unmanned platform. Having them can bring space and weight penalties. So eliminating them really frees up that for additional payloads or fuel so you can stay at sea longer and be more effective in your mission. So it's pretty exciting to see where we're headed and, and really starting to recognize some of the benefits of unmanned and how we can really take advantage of them going forward. I think that leads really well into my next question for you, which was on the disruptive potential or the impact of this technology and and making it usable and deploying it. You know, what are the unique challenges that we see with undersea? I think one of them you just brought up of predictive autonomy for the steering. Um, It's not necessarily something you have to worry about so much in the air domain, for example. But also, you know, how is this really going to change maybe the nature of the way the Navy, the Marines and the Coast Guard think about their fleets and their systems? Yeah, so there's a couple pieces to that question. So I'll I'll start with kind of the unique challenges piece um, for surface and undersea systems. So really, there's several unique parts for surface or undersea relative to an airborne platform. On the surface side, I, I think the most interesting aspect is the long endurance operations at sea. So for example, we have several programs that are requesting 30 to 45 days at sea without human intervention. So in order to support those kind of endurance requirements, you really have to think through redundancy of systems to ensure that things really continue to work after failures. But you also have to provide whole mechanical and electrical autonomy, which allows you to control and maintain your systems. So for instance, the autonomy has to be responsible for such things as actuating valves, flashing tanks, turning systems on and off, moving switches, to ensure that you're capable of operating without a human. I mean, many of these HM&E systems are used to being worked on by someone. So you have to have the autonomy, take that function and continue to keep the reliability of the system up at sea. So this autonomy also can provide you the capability to log system performance such that you can do condition-based or predictive maintenance. So it has some really nice additive benefits when you are operating at sea and and really having to function without humans in the loop. So on the undersea side, there's definitely a similar endurance challenge relative to air platforms, although the timescales are a little bit smaller for UUVs. 
So obviously for them, that necessitates creativity in both their energy chemistries, you know, not just straight stick batteries, you start to have additional conversations about how you can supply the energy and reducing power loads wherever possible. So you're not draining the batteries or, or the energy as quickly. But for me, the more interesting discriminator for those AUVs is really the data challenge. So because you don't have, you know, streaming video or direct connections back to home base, the AUVs have to have a way to collect tremendous amount of data during missions, but then sort, process, and filter that data into something actionable, which is really a huge challenge. So deciding how and when to get that data back to decision makers in a reasonable timescale is a really interesting kind of unique feature that the community is really working on right now. So the second part of your question, I think, was really associated with, you know, kind of how the environment is changing. Is, is that fair? Kind of how human machine teaming is going forward? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So I mean, vehicles, as we've kind of already talked about, have long been desired to perform that dull, dangerous, dirty tasks that humans really don't want to do or aren't very safe doing. However, as we go forward, we really are starting to see a role for unmanned platforms in manned unmanned teaming. So this concept is really focused on how we can team together to use our unmanned and manned platforms in roles that they're most suited for to collaboratively execute missions and solve problems. So that kind of goes away from your more traditional view of, hey, I'm going to stick all the manned platforms in one area, and I'm going to stick all the unmanned platforms in this other area and keep them separated so there's no issues between them. It goes away from that view and starts to look at how to make them a more effective team. So for instance, the autonomous surface vehicle could be a C5 ISR T node for the man platform, or it could be a communications relay or a force protection asset, or even a decoy to support the man ship and allow them to be in a more safe standoff position. So integrating the unmanned and manned systems will provide us with more survivability and lethality on the man platforms and through multiple sensors, you know, fusing that data together, it will also help us get to more timely and reliable decisions, ultimately. So another really interesting aspect, you know, that's kind of the manned, unmanned teaming. When you start to think about unmanned and unmanned teaming, that becomes like the next hurdle. So so ASVs can provide that essential link between the seabed and space and our natural sensors of the environment around them. But depending on the payloads, that sensing capability can start to take many forms from, you know, kind of situation awareness all the way up to more tactical applications. So when you introduce then the UUVs in, you start to look for opportunities to launch and recover UUVs from your USB. That opens up a whole new set of mission sets, 
undersea applications where the USB can then transport that UUV over long distances, launch and recover or launch that UUV to do a focus mission. And that eliminates some of the challenges of UUVs that, you know, if you're not taking them into theater, they can use all their energy on long transit such as they don't really have enough left to do sufficient mission capability. So by teaming the USBs and UUVs, we can get this tremendous benefit from both platforms. It also allows us to pair them together to increase our positional accuracy. So for instance, in high quality survey data, it really can be optimized by having UUVs and USBs together um, these missions could last months without really needing human manned surface vessel support. So the UUV can communicate via acoustic and optical paths. Um, it can send back, you know, more frequent, maybe quasi real-time transmission of harvested data. It can receive mission retask and establishment of more complex networks undersea. The UUVs can really then monitor what's going on below the sea, collect bathymetry, it can locate hazards, it can monitor for unusual presence. And that data collected can be relayed to the USB, which can then provide that long-range communication path via either line of sight or satellite back you know, to home base to the decision makers. So we've demonstrated that UUV USB capability to really deliver an integrated system as a means of conducting low-cost, highly capable mission sets. So it starts to be a really exciting area, not just in terms of manned-unmanned, but also unmanned-to-unmanned capability. I feel like you just covered a million things, and so forgive me if <laughs> my mind is in <laughs> 10 directions at once, but a lot of what you said I feel like we have heard several times on the Tech Unmanned podcast before, just like little pieces, which to me just shows how interconnected all of these emerging technologies are and how we all, all these technologies are facing similar problems. I know for airborne autonomous systems, the long loiter, long endurance missions are something that are starting to get looked at a little bit more as well of, of how can we use less energy, maybe not have them return to base as frequency to be able to perform longer missions. And one of the potential solutions is this launch and recover, which you brought up with undersea as well, which I think is so interesting because you can have a manned platform or any platform, you know, deliver it close to theater, launch, and then loiter somewhere that it's safe for the crew and have the undersea platform go out and do some of these missions that you identified, like force protection, ISR, I assume is a huge one. I know for the space domain, which is what I work in, the ISR capabilities are one of the nation's you know, top assets. And of course they don't see underwater. So we have to have you know, more situational awareness. And, and people always like to say that you know, we know less about our oceans than we do about space, but also the decoys and the, the dangerous tasks like countermining and things like that. Like you said, I think you know, these have such great potential 
But that potential is, to me, it seems reliant on a couple other enabling technologies. And so this is my next question to you of what else do we need to be able to develop? Is that energy? Is that a a good swap ratio, which is something that I think we've heard on like every podcast, size, weight, and power swap for you know, shrinking these systems or making, letting them have this long loiter or extended mission, or is it the data and being able to communicate the data back? The onboard processing, I thought was a really interesting point you brought up because it's also something that new airborne systems are looking at as well, like the F-35, to be able to have that processing on board the data to either, you know, give direct data to the pilot or to only send back usable data or data that's actionable at that moment. And then, you know, of course, if it's undersea, it's like, when does it send it back into where, I think, is, is especially if it's on a long time mission, you mentioned like 40 days or something crazy. Like, these are all such incredible concepts to me. And so, you know, I wanted to know, you know, what other pieces of this puzzle do we need to focus on? Is it the data collection? Is it the artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithms to be able to detect, un, uh, you know, unusual behavior or an unusual presence, I think you said? Is it the energy? What else should Congress and DOD be looking at? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great question. And, and honestly, I think a lot of the things you listed are definitely right front and center for what should be looked at. So to kind of round it out a little bit, so our software really utilizes artificial intelligence and machine learning to enable that planning we talked about earlier. But that autonomy obviously relies on a collection of perception data, which can come from various sources like cameras or radar or AIS, LIDAR, sonars, depth sensors, navigation chart overlays, the kitchen sink, you name it. It can it can pull data from a lot of places, but those systems really are only good, only as good as those perception sensors. So enhancement in those sensors is really critical to get better data to the vehicle. Along the same lines, you just touched on it, really the additional mission capability comes in the forms of sensors and payloads that can function autonomously to enhance the capability of the vehicle. So for instance, if you have a sensor that you can detect that your communication is being jammed, you can then autonomously reposition your USB to an area that's not being jammed. So these types of autonomous capabilities really can expand the operational value of the system. So we're really trying to leverage a distributed and cooperative teaming of these payloads to improve our capability. So as an example, the addition of, for instance, a passive SIGINT payload to several distributed unmanned platforms could really increase the probability of threat detection, as well as the accuracy and precision of where that target data is. Um, if you can share that data and both, um, you know, in your unmanned platforms, it really allows us to demonstrate why collaborative autonomy between payloads and not just platforms is essential. And that's really something that we're focused on. Another key enabling technology that you didn't really hit on, but I think is um, probably true for the aviation platforms as well is reliable, high bandwidth, over-the-horizon communication for both 
mission replanning, but also payload control. So having those communications and future in, uh, advancements really in bandwidth management can really help us. It, it ties back to that data and how much data we need to get off, but being able to be to have reasonable bandwidth to take those packets of actionable intelligence and get them off the platform, hugely important. So those are probably the big ones uh, other than the ones you already uh, talked about. So a random question occurred to me, and I hope you'll indulge me. I know there are challenges with refurbishing submarines, like the long time in between missions, and then they have to dry dock them and they go under these huge hulls. How are you addressing that issue or thinking about that issue with these new vehicles? Yeah, so so refurbishment is a interesting question. Uh, and I'll actually take it a little bit more broadly to some maintenance activities. So as an example, on the UUVs, they're really designed to be at sea for quite a long time, right? We're really looking at building in things like redundancy, but also kind of repeatability into the systems. So for instance, if you send out a UUV for an extended mission, it comes back. How can you quickly take the data off, take the battery out or the energy chemistry if it's not a battery out and send it back on mission? So for instance, as I hearken back to our IVER family of systems, we can essentially take the payload section off and swap it out for a new one. So think of it as splitting your vehicle in half. You have a spare already charged up, configured with the right payloads uh, front section, and you marry it up to the back section and you send it back out underway. So those kind of quick planning, quick maintenance evolutions are something that we're building into our platforms to allow them to be on station and relevant for the majority of their lifespan. So not quite as fast as a Formula One car, but faster than a submarine. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, definitely not Formula One, but, you know, 20 minutes, that's pretty good. That's so, awesome. Uh, yeah, so those those kind of things are are definitely in works and, you know, have, have already been demonstrated to really bring some operational benefit. What I love how it's being thought of at the beginning of the process, at the front end, and not as an afterthought once we've put them into domain and then realize that they have to come out and be dry docked and then they're unusable for, you know, weeks or months. I feel like often I hear Russia brought up when we talk about undersea or surface vehicles, especially up in the Arctic. I was just wondering if you could give me a little insight into this. Why do I always hear about Russia in this, you know, in this technology area? Yeah, so, I mean, I won't comment specifically on Russia, but in general, the U.S. and and really a number of NATO countries are concerned about any type of threat to maritime security or our sea lines of communication or our maritime interests like oil, fishing, or mineral rights. So unmanned vehicles really allow you to cover large swaths of the ocean to deter or, you know, just monitor activities. So this deterrence is obviously more affordable and really more persistent than the manned platforms can usually achieve. And it really takes advantage of the inherent capabilities 
of the unmanned platforms to do that kind of dull, dirty work, sometimes dangerous in this case. So unmanned really is that affordable alternative for combating some of these threat behaviors that we uh, have seen from, you know, bad actors, wherever they may be. And to kind of round out the conversation, I want to ask you, you know, what as an expert in this field, like what would be a sign that we are making good progress either on the policy or the technology challenges? Like, What are you tracking and watching that is positive development? You know, what are you tracking that might be negative? Is it, you know, the NDAA? Is it the budget? What should our audience be watching for? Yeah, so, you know, it's an interesting question, I think. For unmanned, it's been a little unsteady or unpredictable in terms of budget, particularly from DOD, US DOD. You know, we saw a huge push for unmanned, you know, a year or two ago. And then, you know, I would call it a steady degrading of the unmanned budget because I, I think Congress rightfully has said, hey, we're not exactly sure how you plan to use these. So I think that's kind of, you know, on the negative side, if you will, on the positive side, I would say, you know, industry writ large has recognized this uncertainty or hesitation, both the DOD and Congress in terms of these platforms. So I think writ large, we've been working fairly aggressively to find opportunities to demonstrate capabilities, to really show off what is available today, what is in the plans for the future. And there still is a lot of internal investments happening in industry to highlight some of the con-ups that could be recognized or realized with these platforms and, and really, you know, a, a huge interest from industry and seeing these platforms get fielded and really used successfully. So maybe some more clear con-ops or or public declarations of how this technology could be used by the Navy or the Coast Guard, showing that they're not just investing in it because it's cool and flashy, but because they actually see the valuable use that it brings and they can add new missions or alter their existing ones to better conduct you know, out and, and carry out national security and our maritime goals by using autonomous systems versus just kind of asking for money. <laughs> Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, I, um, I think we in industry have recognized that, you know, there is a little bit of uncertainty in the con-ops and we've really been trying to help support in terms of defining what those con-ops could be and, and letting the Navy and the Coast Guard really work to what they need and when they need it, but really trying to bolster what's available in terms of analysis and what's available in terms of capability. Well, just from the policy side, you know, I was digging around looking for reports written by think tanks or other government organizations on policy. I think you see a lot with aerial autonomous vehicles, but I was hard pressed to find studies on undersea or surface uncrewed vehicles, and then also 
to find them on the U.S. I think there's a couple out there on China or Russia's and what they're doing, but there's obviously a gap in the policy. So if anyone's listening and does this kind of work, I think it is well needed. Regan, finally, you are the expert and I've learned so much and I just want to get your kind of like last word of, is there something that we missed in this discussion that's just a glaring hole? Or is there something that you would really like to reemphasize for the audience, the final takeaway? Just one area that I don't think we really touched on that we probably should have. It's kind of a technology gap. And, you know, it's very pervasive throughout DOD, but very crucial here for unmanned platforms. And that's social security and cyber protection. So really ensuring that we have the proper security technique to provide confidence that the unmanned platform will be secure and protected from hostile takeover. Similarly, you know, kind of along the same cyber protection side, if we send a vehicle out on mission, we need to be able to authenticate that that vehicle is returning to the host platform in the same condition it left to really ensure it hasn't been tampered with. So. I won't necessarily elaborate on how we're doing that or how industry is tackling that, but it is definitely a huge focus going forward for unmanned and, you know, of particular interest for both USBs and UUVs, given their mission sets or timescales or, or really the amount of time that they are not necessarily close to home base and um, vulnerable, if you will. Is, is a really huge area. So maybe the biggest, one of the biggest challenges here is the fact that the system is so far away from home base and it's not regularly checking in with other systems physically to be able to tell if it's, if the system's been compromised. Yeah, absolutely. When you, when you think of UUVs, you know, you're sending it out on mission, you're asking it to do its own thing for, you know, 24 hours and you don't know exactly where it's been or what it's done until you get it back on the platform and look at the data in some cases. So making sure it's not been tampered with and you're not bringing something that you don't want back onto your host platform, huge important action. So how are we doing that authentication? How are we protecting our systems when they're out on mission? is really a big focus area for unmanned. I think that to me just sounds like we've had this conversation about every emerging technology as well, right? We think about, you know, aerial autonomous vehicles, but also we talk about it a lot in space as well with our satellites of the vulnerability of these systems, the pace of technology development and cyber development, and really getting those cyber security experts in the same room and making sure that they're talking and, and working with, you know, whatever the other technology experts are. I think something that I've really taken away from the podcast series as a whole, talking about different emerging technologies, whether that is quantum and biotechnology or software, is that we really need everybody. And of course, that makes it really challenging and it'll probably make it take a lot longer. But to build in that resiliency and redundancy into these systems, you do need all of the experts in the room. Well, Regan, I just thank you so much. I've learned so much about surface and undersea systems and their uses. I think you really helped me fill out this gap that I noticed after we did the other autonomous episode that only focused on the air. So I guess maybe next I need one on ground systems. But I would just like to thank you for joining me today. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Really interesting discussion and questions. And hopefully, you know, I was able to provide a different context for you as you look at Unmanned and its contribution to national security. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review the series wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, Tech Unmanned listeners. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, host of the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. And I'm inviting you to check out our conversations with women leaders in national security, foreign policy, international business, and development. We talk about everything from leadership and global security policy to cybersecurity and work-life balance issues. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or at CSIS.org.